The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. We come to Psalm 20 today and... uh, Go ahead and warn you, my introduction is a little bit longer than normal. I'm going to try to explain some things to you. And uh, for, for those of you, some, some people come out and say, man, you really study hard or whatever. Uh, I, I do try to prepare well, but you want to rightly divide the word. So I just want to share with you two books that have been super helpful in understanding the psalm. One is Tremper Lawman's book, How to Read the Psalms. And Uh, Jim Hamilton's book, What is Biblical Theology? Both of these things, uh, both of these books have helped influence how I'm approaching this text today. I don't just pull these things out of a hat. They're not just my ideas of how to do things. We want to look at the word as it is intended to be read and understood. And I want to help encourage you and your reading of the Bible that you're reading it right and you're interpreting it right. So with that in mind, Psalm 20, invite you to stand as I read the word of God. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and may, you, may give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Let's pray. Lord, we now take up your word and we pray that you would be honored and glorified. May we rightly divide the word of truth. May you... Be honored as a result of the preaching of your word. And may you be honored as we continue to understand what you have revealed in your word. And Lord, we come now to glorify Christ, who alone saves. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So the main point of this text is that our trust rests in the Lord alone who saves. And here's what I want to warn you of, and I I try to do this regularly. The big word is eisegesis. We are not free to come to the Bible, to read a verse, to extract that verse from isolation and say, this is what it means. Or particularly, it goes this way. This is what it means to me. So for example, let's, let's do some eisegesis with Psalm 20 for a minute. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. So we could say, okay, we need to take Psalm 20 and we need to pray it because today we're in trouble. There's a hurricane coming. Is that the intent of what Psalm 20 means? Or I'll just be a TV preacher for a second. Verse four, may he grant your your heart's desires and fulfill all your plans. 
Man, that's a blank check. We'll just lay that down on anything we want to do, and that's how we're going to pray. And God has obligated himself right here to give me my heart's desire. So is that right? The answer is no. What we have to do is interpret the Bible in its context, where it is written. We got to look at it in the context of the entire psalm. We got to look at Psalm 20 in the context of the psalm surrounding it. We got to look at Psalm 20 in light of the whole Bible. And when we do that, these verses take on a meaning that is far deeper and richer than my immediate moment in life. So it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So in the flow of the Psalms, this is where we are. Let's go back to Psalm 18. This is a psalm about the victory of the king. It ends this way in verse 50. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now, the word offspring here is singular. He's not referring to the multiple offspring of David. He's referring to an individual. That great salvation that God brings to his king, that is David, and to the anointed one, to the Messiah, to his offspring, and he's going to bring great salvation to him forever. Then you have Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is about the glory of God and that God's word is perfect, that God keeps his word then you come to Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the Lord, our, uh, of, of the God of Jacob, protect you. Now, here's what you're going to see as we work through it. Psalm 20 and 21 reflect Psalm 18. There's something going on here. Now, Psalm 20 has been stated that it is the psalm prior to battle, and Psalm 21 is the psalm after battle. That'll mean more today and next week. Now, here's my question before we read the psalm. This is important for your mind. What's influencing David as he writes? What's in his mind and in his heart? Now, let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, holding your place there in Psalm 20. So David comes to God. He's having tremendous success, and he says, I want to build you a house. And God says this to him, Yahweh, the Lord. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, this is in the middle of verse 11, that the Lord will make you a house. You want to build me a house? Here's what God's going to do. I'm going to make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now, if there's a period right there, you'd say it's got to be talking about Solomon. Keep going. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. This is known as the Davidic covenant. 
The covenant that God makes with Abraham, that from his offspring, from his seed, is coming the anointed one whom God is going to establish his kingdom forever. Now that's in David's mind when he prays Psalm 20. What God has promised him. So let's go to Psalm 20 and first see this. David prays, trusting the Lord to save according to his character and promises. Now, I've already had somebody talk to me about this before the service, that if you read some commentaries, here's what they're going to say Psalm 20 is. Psalm 20 is a prayer of the people of Israel on David's behalf before he goes out to battle. The confusion comes in verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation. So the question really is, who is writing the psalm or who is the general or the primary speaker in the psalm? Is it Israel or is it David? It starts, this is a psalm of David. And the you, I will answer you, is singular. It's one person. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. So here's how I'm going to present this psalm. I, I, w- I would say that this psalm is the prayer of David and that the you is someone in particular that David is referring to. So track with me here. You don't, don't look, look up here and go, that's awful confusing. It's going to become clear. So hang on. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Now, he appeals from the very beginning to to God's covenant-keeping name, Yahweh. May, May Yahweh answer you. David and Israel and all the people of any age can, can call on the name of the Lord because the Lord is ready to work. He is ready to respond. But this is very particular that God that he's calling on the Lord God to answer this individual in the day of trouble. Then he says, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. The name of, what does that mean? It means the reputation of the God of Jacob. God promised to deliver Jacob. And we know because of what he did with Jacob and his descendants that God keeps his promise. Genesis 28 says this, verse 13. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. You got to lay that over what happens to Jacob's family, to his descendants who then are exiled to Egypt and God delivers, he saves them and brings them out in a miraculous way. God keeps his promise. So he's saying here, may the reputation of the God who delivered Jacob protect you. Now, hope you're in Psalm 20 still. If you're not, go to Psalm 18 and look in verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my what? 
fortress. Literally in the Hebrew, that means high fortress. So this word right here, the Lord is my rock and high fortress, is the same Hebrew word as protect. May the name of the God of Jacob high fortress you. This is pretty good for today, isn't it? People scared to death of the floods. So they're seeking high ground, a safe place. Here's, here, here's what God is saying, what David is saying. May, may the Lord be your high fortress. May he protect you. Now here's what he's saying. May he deliver the coming one, you, from trouble. Now here's what we know. So I'm gonna go ahead and open the door. All the days of Jesus Christ were trouble. They were difficult. Back to verse two. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. The presence of God is symbolized in the sanctuary on God's holy hill, that is Mount Zion. And here's what he's saying. In this moment of trouble, all that you need is the presence of God. May he send you help, his presence. May he, may he support you with his presence from Zion. Verse three, may he remember your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. Now here's what the Israelite practice was. That they presented sacrifices and offerings before they went out for a military campaign. This was an act of devotion and submission to the Lord. It was not to atone for their sins. It was to seek the favor of God and to consecrate themselves for war. So may, the, may he remember your, all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Now, if, Jesus, if, if David here is praying for the one, you, what is the sacrifice the one is going to offer? The answer is he's going to offer himself. He's going to give himself. Now, here's where it starts to unlock. Where do we find Jesus just prior to the cross? Gethsemane. What is he doing in Gethsemane? He's praying. Look in verse four. And this ought to bring conviction for those of you who have laid verse four on a new house or a new car, okay? <laughs> May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Acts 13, 22 says this, when they had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. Comma, don't miss this, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So we get in our minds that a man after God's own heart is some dudes playing harps and 
sitting on mountaintops and meditating all day. Not that we shouldn't seek the Lord and meditate before him, but, but what the Bible is describing that a man after God's own heart is a man who knows what God has said and does it. So let's go back to Gethsemane. What does Jesus pray in Gethsemane? Not my will, but thy will be done. Now let's lay that on verse four. May he grant you the desires of your heart and fulfill all your plans. What, what is God's will ultimately? This is why Psalm 19 is in between Psalms 18 and 20. Ultimately, the will of God is that he be glorified and that his word go forth, that his word be accomplished. And ultimately, we saw this over the last three weeks. I didn't intend to put all this together this way. But it is that the gospel will go to all the nations, the good news that Christ has come. Why does the gospel go out of the nations? It goes back to the beginning. So that God is glorified. That he is glorified among the peoples. So brothers and sisters, Jesus has faced the day of trouble and Jesus has accomplished the will of God. How do we know he's accomplished the will of God? What did he say on the cross? It is finished. It's done. So unlike the prayers of in Psalm 20, we're not praying for Jesus to be victorious like David is praying. We pray because Jesus has been victorious. This has altered everything. We celebrate his victory. We're going to see this in verse 5 in a moment. We don't pray for it. We pray that he would manifest, display, make open his public victory, and that he would bring it to bear on those who flatter themselves and think they can push back from him, and that he would allow his people to see the day of the Son of Man when he comes in his glory. So brothers and sisters, we pray on the basis that this victory has been achieved. So we ought to pray like David prays in verse six. He prays trusting the Lord to save with assured confidence. Now I know, he says, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. So David is looking forward to this, what he is praying for you, this individual, and here's what he knows. He knows that God's gonna save the anointed. How does he know that? 2 Samuel 7, God promised he'd establish his kingdom forever. He knows this is gonna happen. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. How else do we know this? I told you there were two foundational Psalms when we started. This would be, just use logic. Like if this was on a test, just use logic. There are two foundational Psalms to understand all of the Psalms. It's Psalm number one and Psalm number two. So let's go to Psalm number two and see how it affects how we're looking at what he's saying here in Psalm 20. Psalm number two. The kings of the earth, this is verse two. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his, who? Anointed. 
Now look in verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And when you take verse 9 and what's promised here and you lay that over with the saving might of his right hand, he will answer the Lord's anointed and with the power of his right hand, here's what he's going to do. He's going to crush heads. This is the promise all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, 15. There's one coming. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the head crusher with the saving might of his right hand. Now, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, who's praying this? Who's praying this? David. Now, collectively, he's, he's praying it here with the people of Israel, but David's the one authoring this. Now, why is this important? Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17, you can. Here's I'm going to show you why this is significant. Deuteronomy 17, this is God's instruction to the children of Israel. When you come to the land, that's the promised land, that the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that surround me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire, what? Many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, after David, when does the demise of God's people begin? When Solomon starts to do what? Amass horses and wives. God says not to do that. He says, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book of the copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and statutes and doing them. So when David prays here, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He's being obedient to God, and he's calling the people to be obedient to him. So if it is a battle prayer, he's saying, we're not going to win because we got a lot of horses and chariots. We're going to win because God is with us, because God has promised that for his people. Now he draws another comparison here. Verse 8. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. So the greatest, the, the, the reason people trust in chariots and horses or tanks and bombs and planes and 
whatever other powerful thing you can think of in order to impose your will over somebody else. Why do you trust in that? Because here's what you don't want to be. You don't want to be overcome. Here's what verse 8 is saying. All these people who trust in chariots and horses, the day's coming when they're going to collapse and fall. The image here is they're going to lick the dust. But we, God's people, we do the opposite of collapse, we rise. We do the opposite of fall and stand upright. Why? Because we trust in the Lord who saves. So verse 9 now parallels the very first verse. It says, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Yahweh, save the king. You see, David here is appealing. He is a king. He's appealing to someone greater, a greater king. And he's appealing that Jesus ultimately might be delivered as our king. Now, verse 5. David prays, trusting the Lord to save with joyful anticipation. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So here's the truth of how he sees this. When the king wins, his people win. So, so let's, let's apply the message of the Bible. When the king of Psalm 2, and now Psalm 20, when the king wins, his people win. Let's go back to 1 Peter 2 about three weeks ago. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We're God's people through Christ. So we prayed, David prays, save the king. And God has saved the king. He has risen from the dead. And because he has risen from the dead, we shout for joy over your salvation. Notice it's not my salvation. We shout for joy over your salvation. What that means is this. We shout for joy that God raised Christ from the dead. That he saved him from death. That he defeated it once and for all. And now in the name of our God, we set up banners. That means that we display the signs of victory. We say we have triumphed through Christ because he has risen from the grave. Brothers and sisters, not only has he risen from the grave, he has ascended on high and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So the end of verse 5, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. And let me take you to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8, this is important, brothers and sisters, is written to a suffering band of believers who are in trouble. And in verse 34, it says, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. This is almost a sidebar here, but let me just say it and be clear. When we learn to pray the Bible, when we learn what God is teaching, it removes our selfish American materialistic mentality of how we approach a holy God who saves. And that we understand that when we come and seek him, we are seeking his glory and his will. Is this not how Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We plead our petitions to the one who is seated at the right hand of God, and we plead with joy. We shout for joy for what Christ has accomplished. So here's my question. My so what today? Am I joyfully trusting in the salvation of the Lord? You could say it this way. Sometimes, sometimes I, I just want to say to believers, where's your joy? Where's your joy? I, I'm grateful I don't see this much here. I don't say I don't never see it, but I don't see it much here. But I've preached places I've been like, what is wrong with y'all? Where's your, where's your, is there no joy in Christ? Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, the implication here is there's difficulty ahead of us. That's the implication. There's difficulty in front of us in this life. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do this? Looking to Jesus, the victor. The victorious king, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for what? Joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, with joy, we pursue the will of God, advancing the gospel of God to the glory of God in the world. And we do it enduring with joy, just as our victorious Savior accomplished it. Now, he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let me tell you how I watched the cloud this week. Some of you others were there. This week, we had a funeral for Clara Johnson. Clara was 88 years old. She had Alzheimer's for the last three years of her life and suffered. Her husband of 65 years, Dwight, faithfully took care of her. His body has turned on him in the last couple of years, and he's become more and more feeble. A couple of weeks ago, something happened, and they both collapsed in their home. I have to believe Dwight was trying to help her. They laid there for some time before they were discovered and then transported to the hospital where they were both gravely ill. Dwight recovered and is now in rehab at Cortland Terrace. But Clara lost her fight and she went to be with Jesus. Earlier this week, we had Clara's funeral here in this room. Dwight was here. The old war horse of the faith had him come with a, a service to pick him up. He was in a wheelchair, cannot use his legs. They wheeled him in and he sat right there by the casket and he spoke to every individual who came through here. We had a little confusion as to how we needed to handle it as people were coming through and the funeral director. Normally we take the family out, they close the casket and then we come in. That's usually what happened. He said, what do we do all these people? I said, we don't need to put Dwight through anything else. I said, you just turn him around. I'll come up on the platform and we'll start the service. Funeral director came down to Dwight and he leaned down in his ear and said, Mr. Dwight, if it's okay, we're just going to turn you around and right here and we're going to start the service. He said, you turn me around in front of Clara. And we all sat here in stunned silence as they turned him and he looked into her one more time. One more time. Then they pushed him back and I watched appear faith. I watched this man sing every word of every song. I preached from the text he told me to preach. I shared the things about his wife that he shared with me. And Chad stood and sang, it is well with my soul, and tears welled up in the old saint's eyes. That's what it looks like to trust in the Lord alone who saves. Because here's what Dwight knew. Here's what he knows. Clara now stands upright. The battle is over. The victory is won because her trust and faith was in Christ. So brothers and sisters, this is where it matters. We look to Christ who suffered through the greatest trouble that mankind will ever know, enduring the shame of our sin on the cross, dying in our place. We look to him and through him, we endure, listen, with joy. 
with joy. For one day, on our behalf, he's going to crush death forever and forever. Let's pray. Lord, as I conclude this service, there, there are two kinds of people in this room. There are those who deny the promised anointed King Jesus and his death on the cross and his victory through resurrection in this room. And may they realize today that they will collapse one day in the presence of Almighty God. May today be the day of salvation where they turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And for those who are trusting in you, I pray that on this rainy, confusing day that we will rise to our feet and that we will praise the King. May we raise our banner in this room and shout for joy in the one who has conquered sin and death. You are mighty to save. You alone bring salvation. We yield ourselves now to you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.